0: Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast, and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United and learn the story behind the story. History. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we witnessed the rise of the most famous leader in Imerina's history. The lord of Zafimamie, Rambos al rose to defeat his treacherous uncle and the other petty kings of the Merina rump kingdoms to become the great reuniter of Imerina, who went by his new throne name, Andrianam With his conquest of Antananarivo under his belt, Andrian Ampoini Merina received oaths of submission from his remaining independent kings, reuniting the kingdom of Imerina and ending an eight-decade period of civil war. It was truly a new era in Highland Madagascar. Season 4, Episode 14. Andrian Ampoini Merina, the birth of the Merina Empire. As Andrian Ampoini Merina looked over the newly conquered city of Antanarifu, he saw the end of an era. In front of an assembled crowd, packed to the brim with noblemen, both local and national, Andrea Nampoini Merina articulated his thoughts on the last 70 years. His years spent learning the fundamentals of oratory paid off, as the new overlord of all of Imerina efficiently delivered his thesis. While his exact words have been lost to time, one section of the speech that survives includes the king condemning the methods of rule of his immediate successors during the civil war, which he called "fanjakana Maloka, or Rule by thugs. This rule of thugs, in which authority fell to whichever man could most efficiently exploit and abuse the populace, had ravaged the country in favor of short gains for a small cohort of the population. However, Andrea Nampuini-Merina didn't let up his criticisms there, though. The newly enthroned king continued that the method of rule practiced by Andrea Massina-Falona was also to blame for this misery. The era of Andrea Massina-Falona, which he called the Fangiacana Holfa, or rule by non-royals, is what had allowed the misery of Fangiacana Melok to arise in the first place. Andrea Massina Falona had failed, but in the opposite way. He had been too benevolent, too willing to share power, and too compromising when it came to establishing a successor. But under Andrea Nampoini Merina, a new era was beginning. His reign would mark the beginning of a new era, the Fangiacana Ambaniandro or the rule by the state. This new system of government would not be brutish like the kings of the civil war, nor would it be accommodating like Andrea Massina Falona. It would fall in the sweet spot between thug and pushover, and lead Marina into a new era of prosperity. But before he could show off what Fanjakana and Bandiandru looked like in practice, Andrea Lampoini Marina had to contend with the last vestiges of resistance within his kingdom. In a twist that shouldn't surprise too much, it turned out that those princes who had taken oaths of loyalty to Andrea had not been entirely reliable. Within a few years of taking their oaths, the prince of Antananarifu, probably still the old drunk king who we met last episode, or possibly his son, it's not super clear, took up arms against the new Mpanjaka Merina. Several smaller towns, especially in the western edges of the country, took the rebellious prince's lead, and similarly rose in revolt. While the Impanjaka's armies quickly recaptured Antanerifu itself, the remains of his foes' armies fled into the countryside and carried on a guerrilla campaign, one which wouldn't truly peter out until the very end of the century. In addition to this ongoing insurgency in the West, Andrianampoini Merina also faced the challenge of both physically and ideologically rebuilding a war torn state. The central Imerina that the Impanjaka had brought under his control was an absolute shell of its former productive power. Farms had been decimated by decades of raids and now several years of deadly locust plagues. The hydraulic infrastructure, which had been the lifeblood of the Medina agricultural economy, was in a horrific state of disrepair after being neglected or actively abused for eight decades. Dams were porous, if even still standing, preventing the formation of reservoirs. Erosion caused canals to meander into streams, often diverting them away from populated centers and draining away crucial water volume from needy farmland. Slave raiding had similarly decimated local economies, with a severe shortage of young, able-bodied people due to them being the most targeted for raids. As a result, labor shortages were widespread in areas affected by the practice, which was, you know, most of Imerina. Andrea Rampoini Imerina's solution to these problems facing his kingdom was one plucked from the history of his people the remobilization of the conscript labor system of Fanampuana. Now, it's worth remembering that we know shockingly little about the inner workings of, well, how Fanampuana actually functioned in the old Marina kingdom. While the Tantara and similar retellings insist that such a system of corvee labor did exist in this period, details about its organization, how it worked, and how groups were incentivized to take part in the corvee labor system are relatively scant. Andrian Ampoini Merina's rule, though, features the first detailed accounts in which we can be relatively certain how this system worked. So how did Fanampuana, re-implemented for the first time in 70 or more years, actually function on a ground level? The system of Fanampuana required a deep level of cooperation with the traditional family units of the Hofa-class of Imerina, known as the Deme. Demes in the past had generally been a thorn in the side of the impanjake Imerina, a threat to the power of himself and his Andreana family members. Andrea Nampoi Merina's great-grandfather, Andrea Massina Falona, had proven exceptional when it came to building connections with Deme. He built family connections through strategic marriages with the Demes to procure their willing cooperation, rather than trying to bully them into submission to Andriana overlords. Remembering back to his speech in Antanarifu, however, we can recall that Andrea Nampoi Merina did not want to emulate this system of rule. To him, the local dames scattered throughout his kingdom shouldn't be seen as rivals, but they should also not be seen as allies. Instead, he viewed them as tools. He had, like many Merina youth, grown up playing the strategy game Fanorona. One of the lessons he had learned from this game was that, through careful manipulation, you could incentivize or trick your opponent into making moves that were advantageous for you. Just like how the movement of a game piece could get his opponent to play into Andrea and Ampoini game plan, so too could he incentivize the Deme to do what he wanted. He would not cater to them like his great-grandfather had, but nor would he fight them. He would manipulate and direct them. One method of motivation which Andrea and Ampoini made great use of was by incentivizing Demes through rewards and rivalries. Prizes included things like land, legal rights, and privileges and in some cases, elevation from the Hofa class to being adopted as a member of the Andriana. But in most cases, the reward was that the king would share a bit of his Hasina, or Virtue Essence, to be offered up to Demes which could complete public works at quick rates or high quality. Additionally, the Impanjaka y Merina often intentionally chose Demes with a history of rivalry to compete for the reward, so that in addition to the normal reward, dame leaders also had additional incentive to sit happy knowing that they had denied this reward to their rival. With these incentives in place, Andrian Ampoini Marina could get the dames to work much more quickly and efficiently on agro-engineering projects, like canals, dams, reservoirs, drainage canals, and quays. And the king certainly kept his people busy. From 1790 until 1810, historian Jean-Pierre Racine estimates that a total of approximately 1.25 million man-hours of labor were invested into the construction and upkeep of Imerina's canal infrastructure alone. That's about 171 total man-hours of labor invested each and every day. This enormous amount of labor was necessary, despite the fact that the Mpanjaki Merina was more than happy to take shortcuts on certain projects, what we might today call working smarter, not harder. One strong example of such a shortcut involves, as mentioned earlier, the erosion of canals. In more than a few cases, erosion had altered the course of some irrigation canals away from population centers. So, when possible, Andrea Nampoi Merina opted to, well, move the village instead of the canal when such a shortcut was viable. After all, moving the village to a location along the canal's now altered path was infinitely cheaper and easier than altering the course of the canal back to how it was. Throughout Andrianan reign, dozens of communities were relocated away from their traditional living space to a new one, closer to where the old canal had meandered. This was, of course, a very unpopular decision among the people being moved. Sure, the new location was closer to the canal and better for farming, but the old village was their ancestral home. Remember, Malgasy society places an enormous premium on the concept of length of land ownership, with social prestige being very closely tied to how long you could demonstrate your family had lived on their land as a result demes were often very unhappy with the suggestion that they leave their family jewel a village in which they could correctly claim their family had worked for centuries in favor of a new location they had no connection with this was in a true sense a social downgrade even if it was also a material upgrade to convince or more honestly to coerce these whole fun to moving Andrea Lampoini Marina often had to resort to something completely unthinkable, exhuming and moving the bones of the village's ancestors. In order to sever the connection between the Deme and their old home and strengthen the connection with their new, designated settlement land, Andrea Lampoini Marina and his men frequently exhumed the graves of Deme ancestors and moved them to the new site. This system was, again, very unpopular, but also quite effective. Through these cost-saving measures and effective utilization of deme labor, the agricultural infrastructure was repaired at an impressive rate. By 1795, the intermittent famines strangling Imerina were gradually relieved. In fact, with families moving to new, less heavily exploited land, as well as switching back to wet rice cultivation, harvests boomed to new heights. This new agricultural surplus, combined with the end of foreign slave raiding in Imerina, Population plummet reversed into soaring population growth, with the country's population expanding from between one5 to 2.5% each year. For reference, the all-time height of global population growth took place in 1963, with a rise of 2.2% each year, driven by the rise of new agricultural and medical technologies. Imanina was experiencing a similar rate of growth in the late 18th century, to summarize, the country was growing fast. The newly revamped system of agriculture, though, brought a newly revamped system of problems. For starters, the reintroduction of water-intensive agriculture led to a perverse incentive to monocrop. You see, while rice had long since dominated the Merina diet, it was far from the only thing Hofa farmers were cultivating. Alongside rice, which was known to the Hofa as the white crop, farmers also cultivated black crops, or other crops which were grown to supplement rice in the Magna diet. These included millet, beans, taro, peanuts, and more. In fact, the lack of regularly available water supplies over the Civil War period had many bad effects, but one of the few positive things it did was increase the volume of black crop harvests. The advantage of these crops was threefold. For one, they required smaller amounts of water than wet rice farming, they provided much-needed nutritional support, and, most significantly, they mitigated the damage that could be done to soil by monocropping. But by reintroducing easily available irrigation water, Andrea Nampoi Merina heavily incentivized farmers to begin monocropping rice again. After all, rice is an undeniably efficient crop, with harvests producing an enormous surplus of calorie compared to other crops. Black crops, on the other hand, while healthier for both humans and the soil in the long term, provided less immediate value than simply monocropping rice. Andrian ampoini Merina was actually quite aware of this problem, and often advertised the importance of growing black crops alongside the white crop. He even went out of his way to import new crops to try and encourage black crop growth, such as pumpkins and corn. But despite the king's best efforts to encourage a more balanced agrarian economy, black crop productivity still noticeably declined. The Marina agrarian economy ran on rice production, convincing people to shift away from the ever more efficient grains was a tall order. While agriculture made up the majority of Imerina's economy though, Andrea Merina was more experienced in the place where his career began, trade. The trade economy of Imerina was one which Andrea Merina was intimately familiar with and therefore one which he quickly identified as an area of weakness for his kingdom. While Andrea Lampoini Merina worked as a professional merchant in his early days, such a position was quite rare in Merina. In the vast majority of cases, Merina people were largely passive in terms of securing trade routes. Merchants from the coast, usually either Sakalava or Swahili from the west, or from the Betsini people of the east, were the active means of transportation on these routes. These traveling merchants acted as middlemen between the highland people and their own European, Arab, Swahili, or Indian coastal partners. While most Hofa people did not see the full picture of how such a trade worked, Andrea Ampo Merina's position as a merchant gave him a rare window into this world and let him comprehend how disadvantageous the system was for Imerina. Due to their passive role as producers and not as merchants, every single transaction that the Hofa made a portion of its value was being siphoned off by a coastal middleman. With this problem in mind, after becoming king, Andrian Ampo Merina decided that passive participation in coastal trade, by simply letting foreign merchants come to them, was no longer an option for the Merina. Instead, he instituted a series of protectionist laws designed to firmly place control of the trade flowing in and out of the highlands in the hands of his own personal agents. As part of a new decree regulating trade in his kingdom, Andrian Ampoi forbid his subjects from selling products to traveling coastal merchants. These foreign merchants, both in the form of coastal Malgassi and from beyond the ocean, were heavily restricted in when and where they could enter Imerina. In addition to needing expressed consent from the royal government to even enter the country, they were only allowed to stay in a single village in the interior of the highlands called Ambatomanga, a village which, mind you, was about a five-hour walk away from the capital. Instead, the king's subjects were now mandated to sell their wares to a small army of merchants. These merchants were enslaved domestic servants to the king, but unlike the majority of enslaved people in Merina, were offered a degree of education and prestige due to their role in facilitating the sacred acquisition of materials. These enslaved merchants traveled between predetermined locations, which would evolve into major market hubs in their respective regions. The merchants would then travel from these markets to the coast and sell the products in the markets there, giving the Medina government an unprecedented level of control over the local price of trade goods. Such a system was undoubtedly beneficial for the government's perspective. Not only did the new government merchants afford them new levels of influence on economic matters throughout the island, but these new merchants proved quite profitable for the state. Quantities of rice, which had previously been able to buy one enslaved worker or maybe two horns of powder could now buy several of either product. For the state, this new mercantile system was a great generator of wealth. For the ordinary farmer or craftsman, however, the new system was a mixed bag. On the one hand, the emergence of standardized and universally agreed-upon market locations allowed hofa to sell their wares with more consistency and in larger quantities. The mercantile reforms were also coupled with the standardization of weights and measures throughout the country making it easier to exchange profits while making it harder to get scammed by misleading prices. On the other hand, the new monopoly on exports held by state merchants meant that they held all the leverage when buying products in local domestic markets. For example, selling an enslaved worker to a Betsini Saraka or Sakalava merchant could typically fetch a HOFA vendor a price of approximately 60 silver pieces of eight. Andrea nampoini Merina's merchants, on the other hand, were ordered to never even consider a price above three pieces of eight. This same pattern of decreasing value held true for vendors of metal, agricultural goods, or just about anything else they could sell. Essentially, this new mercantilist system added great deals of wealth for the king and his Andreana allies. For ordinary people, though, the effects were mixed and uh, mostly negative, at least in the short term. Renewed population growth also brought its own new set of problems in this case, a shortage of available arable land. With the population of Imerina once again growing, and the amount of arable land shrinking from soil decay and population transfers, land was becoming increasingly short in supply. To make matters worse, local Demes were famously proud of their nest egg their ancestors had handed to them, and were of course reluctant to allow other families to move into their historic lands. Although Imerina had ceased fighting with itself in a military sense, the kingdom would not be able to enjoy peace for long. Throughout the 1790s and early months of the year 1800, the king focused most of his efforts in his home northern province. There, he invaded the lands of his Sihamaka neighbors in an attempt to conquer land for future Hofa settlement and colonization. These conquests, though, proved insufficient. With a need for new lands to house the growing Marina population, the king turned his eyes south, towards the territory of a people called the Betsileo. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Now, despite the fact that we are now 14 episodes into our series on Madagascar, we have, maybe surprisingly, only covered a tiny portion of Madagascar's ethnocultural history. While this series has focused almost exclusively on Imerina, and to a much lesser extent has featured the Sakalava people and the Sihanaka as side characters, these three people groups only represent a portion of the people of Madagascar. Now it's time to add another entry into our visualization of the Malgasi cultural fabric by introducing the people of the southern highlands, the Betsileo. When Andrea Lamponi Merina was planning a future war in the south, the concept of Betsileo identity was still brand new. Just like the Merina, the Betsileo emerged from a migration of Austronesian people from the eastern coast in some time between the 10th and 14th centuries. It's not super clear. Also, just like the Merina, the Betsileo encountered, mingled with, and eventually came to rule over the mysterious original inhabitants of interior Madagascar, the Fasimba. However, the Betsileo took a bit longer than their Merina neighbors to experience political centralization. Now, keep in mind that culturally, at least for the time, there wasn't really much distinguishing the Merina and Betsileo peoples. Rather, it's more accurate to think of both of these groups as a patchworks of various local cultural traditions. Both the concept of being Petzileo and Merina were, at least in this time, primarily political designations rather than cultural ones. The Merina were the subjects of the impanjake Merina, but were often quite culturally distinct from each other. Remember, for example, the people of Ambojitra Trimo, who had the unique tradition of growing out their hair. It wouldn't be unthinkable for one village populated by Betsileo to have more in common culturally with a nearby Merina village than with a further away Betsileo village, and vice versa. Rather, for the time, it's easier to think of the Betsileo as being one of the many highland people who were culturally similar to the Merina, but had not accepted rule by the Impanjake Merina. It wasn't until the late 1790s that Betsileo identity began to truly emerge into a cohesive concept. The people of the southern highlands, just like the Merina, suffered informal conquest by their western foes, the Sakalev. At this time, the people of the southern highlands were divided among numerous kingdoms, with the larger ones sometimes consisting of a collection of a few communities, and the smaller ones being sometimes about the size of a village. Just like the people to their north, they suffered immensely under the weight of Sakalava raids and tribute obligations. However, in the late 18th century, a collection of southern highlander kings, tired of their exploitation at the hands of the king of Minabe, decided to throw off their yoke and refuse tribute payments. Instead, they gathered into a coalition under the informal rule of a local king named Andrea Manalina Rifu. The coalition refused the demands for tribute payments. And when the king of Minabe sent a punitive expedition, the allied army under Andrea Manalinarifu managed to beat them in battle. It was from this victory that the men with this alliance would gain the name that would eventually become synonymous with the people of southern highland Madagascar, Betsileo, or the Many Invincible People. Now, by the year 1800, the problem of the expanding Medina population finally hit ahead, and many Hofa began to migrate south from Imerina into the northernmost lands of the Betsileo, a kingdom called Fakinankaratra. As you might expect, this process was not met happily by the people of Fakinancaratra themselves, who responded by raiding and attacking the Merina intruders. While we don't know precisely what Andrian Ampoini Merina thought of these settlers' invasions of the Betsileo, his actions seem to indicate that, at the very least, he was more interested in expanding his territory than grappling with the concerns of his people's violent settlement. Upon receiving news of the violence in Fakinancaratra, Andrea Merina's response was not to limit his people's expansion, but to instead send messengers to local kings demanding their submission. When Merina messengers arrived in the court of Andrea Manalina Rofa, they tried to convince the powerful Bezileo king to revoke his own independence. If he did, they insisted, he and his people would be given the utmost fair treatment and integrated into the Merina kingdom as though they were Andrea Nampoini Merina's sons. The king promptly told the messengers to stick it, asserting that he was not Andrea Marina's son, but his equal, and would never be subordinate. To quote the king, Make myself Andrea Marina's son? How could I be his child? If anything, I am his brother. Each of us rules our own home. The king then proceeded to take out a long wooden staff and instructed a servant to hold it up. The king stretched out his arms, while the servant measured the staff, and confirmed that it exactly matched the length of the Betsileo ruler's wingspan. He held up the stick with pride. This is the length of my breaststroke. If Andrea Merina can equal or surpass my measurement, then I will declare myself his child. When the staff returned to Antanarifu, Andrea Merina compared his own wingspan to that of the Betsy king, and found that he came up short. Unwilling to concede the question of rulership over a metric like arm length, Andrea Namponi Merina made his reply. A man's greatness is not the length of his arms. I, myself, am much larger than a stick. Let Andrea Manalina Rolfa know that he will be my son. The back and forth negotiations continued for a few years, with each king routinely failing to make progress in persuading the other. Eventually, the time for negotiation had concluded, and Andrea Namponi Merina sought to conquer the Betsileo by force. Luckily for Andre Lampoini Merina, the institutions of Imerina translated well into the establishment of a large military, namely in the form of the Fanampuana Labour Corvée. This draft of labor gave the Mpanjak Merina an established institution from which he could draw a consistent stream of manpower. While this manpower had traditionally been applied to labor on infrastructural projects, it could, as you can imagine, with some minor tweaking, be easily transformed into a military draft. Not only did this mean that the king had access to a constant and reliable stream of manpower, it also meant that raising an army was unusually cheap. Falampuana, after all, was essentially a form of taxation on able-bodied people, an obligation which Hulfa performed in addition to their regular taxes. The labor was otherwise completely unpaid. This meant that if the Falampuana was converted into a military apparatus, the soldiers too would be unpaid. Additionally, the recent implementation of his new mercantilist trade policies had allowed Andrea Ampoini and to procure previously unthinkable numbers of firearms. While these early guns didn't necessarily provide an enormous military advantage in terms of each soldier's capabilities, the relative ease of training a soldier with a musket, as opposed to a bow, spear, or sword, meant that the king could easily raise relatively large forces of men. The army which invaded the northern Betsileo provinces was not a professional or well-drilled force, but it was far cheaper, larger, and more easily replenished than the Betsileo armies they faced. The Merina force was relatively small by global standards, with only around 8,000 men raised for the campaign. But for a kingdom in inland Madagascar in this period, such an army was unthinkably enormous. Andrea Manalinarofa's kingdom, as well as his confederated partners, soon fell to Andrea Nampoini Merina's advance. With a short series of conquests, Andrea Nampoini Merina had almost doubled the territory of his kingdom, and, for the first time, exceeded the previous territorial height set by Andrea Massina Falona a century prior. But while this conquest of the northern Bezileo surely represented a remarkable achievement, the process of integrating the newly captured territories would soon turn disastrous for Andrea Merina, on a personal level. You see, Andrea Namponi-Marina had recently exited a bit of a romantic snafu. For the last few years, the king had developed a major crush on a certain noblewoman named Miangli. The two had met when the king was still young, and he quickly developed an impassioned love for her. Now, I can't get into their story of their romance here, because it's frankly too long, but I think it would be a perfect topic for one of our premium episodes. So if you'd like to learn more about the dramatic and tragic romantic saga between Andriana Poini-Merina and his future wife-turned-ex-wife, Miangli, then you can find it by supporting the show at patreon.com historyofafrica. People who support the show receive access not only to special polls, which determine the topics of future seasons and special miniseries, but also gain access to our library of now more than 40 premium episodes and behind-the-scenes content. So, if you want to support this show and our project of free online history education, then please sign up at patreon.com historyofafrica. And to those already supporting the show, a heartfelt thank you. To make a long story short, while the duo of royals were deeply in love, the politics of the era conspired to interrupt their romance. While Andrea Lampoini Merina's armies had subdued the northern Betsileo territories, he knew that his armies would not accept his rule unless he went out of his way to legitimize himself as a Betsy Leo monarch. While he had tried to find an alternative solution, the obvious answer was staring him in the face. The king's advisors pushed him to do what was best for his kingdom, and take one of the daughters of a Betsy Leo family as his wife. With this decision, Miangli could no longer be the main focus of the king's romance, and she was quickly demoted to the rank of one of his many concubines. In addition to the diplomatic marriages to secure rulership over the Betsy Leo, Andrian Ampoini Merina's rule additionally proved significant in rewriting the diplomatic status quo between Ymerina and its neighboring Sakalava kingdoms. If you remember back to our last episode, the Merina Civil War was a time when, in a real sense, Ymerina was under the strong influence of its Sakalava neighbors. Remember that by this time, there were two major Sakalava kingdoms on the island, Menabe in the south and Boigny in the north. The kings of Boigny extracted heavy tribute sums in the forms of enslaved people, cattle, and other goods from the people of northern Imerina, while the Menabe dominated the polities of the south. However, the rise of Andrinampoyn Merina, who had already asserted his kingdom's independence from Sakalava tribute, terminated this relationship. As you might imagine, the Sakalava were not happy about this development. The armies of Boigny continued to raid Merina settlements, usually getting expelled by Andre Nampoini-Merina's army, but at a heavy cost for both sides. Menabe, on the other hand, enjoyed a more neutral relationship with the Mbanjaka-Merina, not really sure of what to make of this re-emergence of a unified state in the interior. In an effort to prevent raids from Boigny, Andre Nampoini-Merina made a daring change in Merina foreign policy. He would enter into an alliance with Menabe. In 1798, the king sent a series of diplomatic missions to Menabe, bringing gifts to the royal family and informing them of the benefits of an alliance between the two kingdoms. Relations gradually warmed through the years. Eventually, the king was even able to secure some Sakalava mercenaries from Menabe to aid his army against the Betsileo. Compared to Andrenan Merina's conscript army, the Sakalava were well-experienced in combat with firearms from their practice of raiding and proved more than capable as foreign advisors. These mercenaries would have introduced Merina levies to new tactics and fighting techniques, bolstering their combat capabilities and providing a distinct advantage over their Betsy foes. Eventually, the emerging cooperation between the states blossomed into a full-blown alliance. When the king of Minabe happened to pass away not long after, Andrea Nampoini Merina sent a gift to his new allies of oxen to his widow, the new queen of Minabe, for her to receive at her husband's funeral. This was symbolically the last tribute payment Imerina would ever make to a Sakalava kingdom. With Minabe on his side, the raids from Boigny began to slow, before eventually stopping altogether. Within ten years of capturing Antanarifu and reigning from the Besakana, Andrianampoinimerina's Imerina's list of achievements were already immeasurable. Not only had he put an end to Sakalava domination over the Imerina, but he had ended their raids entirely. The intermittent periods of famine were replaced with renewed population growth. The mercantile economy assured that the state treasury was well stocked. Imerina's armies were large, its people's bellies were full, its territories and population were growing, and its government was rich. Andre Lampoi had not only renewed Imerina to its glory days, he had surpassed them, redefining what glory days even meant. Already, he had secured a legacy which easily marked his position as the most successful king to ever rule Imerina. There was no question of that. But the king was still unsatisfied with his success. Instead, Andre Lamponi Merina on his deathbed, would eventually state his true ambition, which surpassed all others. He wished for his successor to bring his kingdom's frontiers to the sea. This final ambition would be the only one which Andre Nampoi failed to meet. The king, after all, had already been well into his adulthood when he had captured Antanarifu, so his reign would clearly be a fairly short one. Instead, the responsibility to bring Imerina's frontiers to the ocean fell to his successor. Join us in our next episode as the new Mpanjaka Imerina, an ambitious young man named Radama, expands Imerina far beyond its former limits, and in the process, spawns the very notion of Malagasy identity. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash history of Africa, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagwamie, Morgan Blackmore, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Shea Noloronti Mine, Kwajua Manqua, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Ghassan Virgiani, Nii T, and Kitty, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.